support in the military is something that's always very important to me. People wanted to ask me how my, my child wants to be a catcher. What do I tell them? And I said, catch every ball. And in life, isn't that the way it is? I spent two years in the service, and I was proud to be part of it. I wore that uniform with a pride and dignity, just like I wore the Dodger uniform with great character and love. The greatest name in the history of the Cleveland Indians franchise, Mr. Bob Feller. Welcome to the American Valor Podcast. Alongside Tyler Buckholtz and Colin Kirk, my name is Nathaniel Cameron. We thank you for joining us today as we continue to learn about citizenship, service to others, and commitment to country on the American Valor Podcast with the support of the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is a great honor. Uh, it was a great honor to serve on the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation uh, Board of Directors as we stood that up and and uh, really uh, anything that we can do to support the foundation and communicate the positive message of the great things they're doing, I'm, I'm very much for. So thank you guys for having me. Thanks for all you're doing for the team. We'd like to start off just asking you a little bit about yourself. If you wouldn't mind um, telling our listeners um, just a little bit about you and your story. Okay. Um, well, um, so depending on how far you want to go back, uh, originally from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, spent a lot of time moving up and down the East Coast with my dad, who worked for Marriott for for many years, and then on to other ventures, and then ultimately landed in Virginia. And so from Central Virginia, uh, graduating high school in a little uh, town called Standardsville, Virginia, from William Monroe High School, and uh, uh, met my high school sweetheart there, and and we've been married for going on 37 years now, and. And um, and then we joined the Navy two weeks after high school, and, and, and we were off on our journey. And so in the United States Navy, went to boot camp in Orlando, Florida, uh, went to school in Meridian, Mississippi, which is where my wife and I were married in Meridian, Mississippi. And um, from there, it's been a 30-year a journey in the Navy uh, as a started out as a logistics specialist in the Navy, and then ultimately becoming uh, one of the top uh, five senior enlisted sailors in the Navy as a fleet ma master chief for the manpower personnel training and education enterprise, uh, which uh, pretty much serves the entire United States Navy. So I uh, had that for 30 years. It was a great honor and uh, what an amazing life to live. Very challenging with the family, obviously, because you spend a lot of time away from your family, uh, but with an amazing support uh, group at home with my wife and my two sons who both now work and serve in the Navy. Uh, we were able to have a very successful career. And uh, after the Navy, uh, spent my first five years after the Navy back working for the Navy again uh, and worked in this area of sexual assault prevention and response for the Secretary of the Navy. And uh, after doing that for five years, I moved over to in the Pentagon to the Director of Navy Staff, Director of Operations. And so I've been there for about two years now. And uh, really uh, seeing all, all of what's going on in the world now from a very big perspective and, and supporting uh, our chief in naval operations and our, our vice chief and our, and our director of Navy staff and all that they have to do in their responsibilities. So that's me. Uh, I would say first and foremost, I'm the husband to Cheryl, I'm the dad to Anthony and Jason, 
and uh, very proud of uh, of our Navy family and 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 how we've uh, been able to uh, grow through our leadership experience together um, uh, over the last 35, 36, 37 years. Going back to when you first enlisted in the Navy, what led you to make that decision? So I had a high school friend of mine, Jim Zeef, who I, I am still in touch with uh, back home. And um, so Jim had actually, I was working for his parents in their, in their printing company and was doing production management in the back of the, the press shop there. And uh, so Jim had decided to join the Navy and he got me to join with him under the buddy program. Uh, and so we did that in about the January timeframe. Uh, my wife and I, uh, we got in a delayed entry program, so we knew we were going to go into the Navy eventually. Uh, turns out uh, Jim was in a car accident, hurt his back, and ultimately couldn't go into the Navy. And so there was no more buddy program, but it was still Scott Benning going into the Navy. Uh, in between January and, and June, my wife became pretty serious, decided we were going to get engaged and and then two weeks later after graduation, I went into the Navy uh, and brought her down to Meridian, Mississippi, down on Labor Day weekend. And then we got married on October 1st of 1983. And so for a logistics specialist, October 1st is a special date. I didn't pick that date because of this, but it's the first day of the fiscal year. And so we got married on the first day of the fiscal year. So it was very rarely ever that we got to celebrate our anniversary on our anniversary date the years to follow because of the first day of the fiscal year for a logistics specialist managing money. As you've talked about your family and um, you know kind of the interaction between your family and your career and how your family was kind of um, a part of your career and with you along the journey what was what was it like to try to balance that and have your family support you while also being part of the Navy family? It was tough I will tell you my oldest son saw us during some of the toughest times. My first ship in the Navy, my wife, I was on board that ship for three years. And my wife went back and looked at it after our tour there. And we were home on board that ship for an average of 44 days a year. And now keeping in mind, that's when we were home. And then we stood duty every three days. So every third day I was away from my family on board the ship uh, standing duty. And so there was, that was a very difficult time for my oldest son. And, and he struggled in his uh, early days in elementary school because of that. Um, and, and, you know, but we found ways. My wife has always been very creative in trying to find ways and how we can connect. So, for example, um, I would sit down on, on a camera and, and I would read books to my son to tape uh, so that when I was on deployment and gone for six months, he could sit there and he could look at it. Back in those days, the only mail that we had then was snail mail, right? So we didn't have all the great things we have email now. I'd get a letter that was three weeks old when I was on deployment or something, and I'd pull into a port visit and I'd make a phone call, and and I'd be hearing about things that happened, you know, three weeks ago that I hadn't had any awareness of. Uh, I can recall one time I got a letter from my wife about a car accident. Somebody did a hit and run on their car. And, you know, and so I'm, I'm getting this as we get in the port. I'm running to a phone in port to find out everybody's okay. She goes, what are you talking about? I said, the accident. She said, it happened three weeks ago. And I'm like, you know, you, you really just, you can't fathom what it was like back then and compare it to what it is today. When I was a command master chief of the USS George Washington and we're out in the middle of the Persian Gulf, I had a phone that was sitting right on my desk that I could pick up the phone and call my wife. 
And so over a period of 20 years, just how fast technology has grown um, and then, you know, not only in your home computer or in your desk or at your office, but think about it from that perspective too, the quality, what the, how it's improved the quality of life for our families over the years has been significant with, with the use of technology. Uh, but again, it got back to being creative with our two sons. And my wife would probably tell you that my oldest son never really understood how important it was for the work that he was, that we were doing as a family and serving the Navy until 9-11. And then when 9-11 happened, it became, you know, this huge event for our country, obviously. Um, but then he understood at his young age that, wow, this is why we do what we do. Um, my younger son has known since he was in, you know, a nine-year-old uh, that he wanted to be in the Navy. And so he's now a junior officer in the Navy, uh, a lieutenant in the Navy. And my, my oldest son, funny enough, he graduates from college, understanding the value. He comes back and does an internship on a Navy base, and he now runs all the sports, fitness, and aquatics programs for Naval Station Norfolk. And so here they are both down in the Tidewater, Virginia area, serving our Navy and serving our nation in different capacities. But throughout it, my wife has always emphasized the importance of why we make the sacrifice and the importance of defending our country for the many other people that live in our country. And, and they've, you know, you can see those values instilled to them because of how she, how well she's always communicated that to our sons. Well, wow, that's really amazing. Uh, a second generation joining the Navy. Um, was there any advice that you gave them? Uh, I guess mainly your, your, younger son who maybe wanted to join the Navy. Um, is there any advice you gave him or that you would give to a younger person, whether in ROTC in college or looking to enlist straight out of high school as you did, um, who's looking to join the Navy? Is there any advice you would give them? Yeah, so for my, for my youngest son, uh, who went to uh, Old Dominion University on a uh, ROTC scholarship, um, so, you know, after my time and, and realizing we, we were able to help our oldest son get through college, uh, the younger one wanted to be in the Navy, so I encouraged him to pursue his education and, and allow the, the Navy to help him pay for that. And so he did. He, went, he got an ROTC scholarship, and he went that route. That's one route. And I would tell you that's not the only route that people should focus on for getting education. For the young people that, that are now considering um, coming into the military, the benefits that you get out of serving in the military by far outweigh the sacrifice you're going to make in some ways. Uh, and that depends on the, the level of your sacrifice, obviously, right? Because there are some that have made the ultimate sacrifice. So I don't want to discredit that at all. But the reality of it is, is that if you join and you come into the military, if, if you come in as an enlisted person, you're going to have opportunities to get your education. I got my education. I I have I went to Southern Illinois University. We had a campus down in Virginia Beach for SIU, and I was able to get my four-year degree over a period of about two and a half years uh, because of the programs and the partnerships that many of the universities have with the militaries. Uh, this year, uh, the Navy and the Marine Corps are standing up the the community college in which they'll be able to take online classes for the community college while they're in the United States Navy and it not cost them anything. And so there are opportunities, whether you stay uh, 10 years, whether you stay four years, whether you stay 
20 years or whether you stay 30 years, the opportunities for you to improve yourself while you're serving your country, then the Navy or, or the other branches of service, whatever branch you choose, is doing everything they can to invest in their people. Because what we realize that what requires our country to have a great defense is the investment that we make in our people to make sure that we continue to be the greatest military in the world. And so just like any other company, if you want to be a strong company, you have to invest in your people to continue to grow. We are doing that in the Navy. We have to be on the leading edge of technology and everything else that goes for uh, contributing to make us the, the, to be the best and sustain our greatness. We have to do that by investing in people. And so uh, I don't think there's a place in the world that's going to allow you to come on board, pay you a salary, and send you to school while you're getting that salary, have you go to school for free, and then give you a GI Bill when you walk out the door that will pay for also four years of college. And so um, I just think there's, you know, the, the, the benefits that you gain by personal growth and investment in yourself Others will look at it as being a sacrifice, but there's sacrifice in everything that you do in life. Even if you're even you, for you all that are just going to college right now, right? There's a sacrifice in that. You're some would say, well, you'd go uh, go do a technical skill and start working right away, and you might already be, but or you could just be start working and creating your own company and doing these things. Well, there's a sacrifice in putting your life on hold for a period of time to go to school and get an education that's going to that's going to benefit you in doing whatever your goals are in the future. The military can be like that for a period of time or it can be a career for a lifetime because you've learned to adjust and adapt to that lifestyle. And so uh, I, I think at the end of the day, you have to identify what your priorities are, what you want to do in life, and then manage those priorities and then work towards them, right? It's about a purpose-driven life. What is your purpose? What are you trying to achieve? And then how do you get there? And you have to map those things out and set yourself goals. You're going to have setbacks along the way, but you know, if you allow setbacks to stop you, that's, that's a personal problem that you need to overcome and to work through those problems and to be able to jump forward and get past that and say, okay, I had a setback. Now what do I do? And what do I do to get back on the path to success? And so, you know, life is hard. It's not easy. Uh, just like anything that we do in life, the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. So you get in life what you give in life. And so uh, you have to think about it from those types of perspectives. But the military, I would highly recommend it to anybody. It's been uh, it's been a great honor uh, to be able to say we served. It's now like one percent of the population in our country that have served in the military. Uh, so think about that for a minute. One percent of our population that have served in the military. It's an honor to serve when you're 1% of the population. And so take a look at it from that perspective as well. So, yes, absolutely. Thanks for that question. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think what you're saying about investing in human capital is such a – it's on a, an all-time high right now in our nation, um, stressing education and people going to college and getting that experience. Um, one thing that's also stressing human capital is leadership. And uh, you wrote a book on the power of positive leadership. And the main thing you emphasize is reflecting on yourself. Could you uh, explain to our listeners your viewpoints on leadership? Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, you know, after spending 30 years, I've, I've for years have been trying to encourage our senior enlisted leaders to write books on leadership 
whether it be from a, a perspective of transitioning to life after the military or just passing on lessons learned. We have a thing in the Navy called Sea Stories. And Sea Stories are passing on lessons learned to those that will come behind us so they don't have to relearn those lessons, but they can take the story to the next level. And so to me, um, we have a lot of senior officers that do a great job in writing uh, books on leadership. And so I think I finally have got uh, a few of the other senior enlisted leaders now that are writing books, which I think is phenomenal because everybody has a story and everybody has lessons that they learn along the journey. Well, if we don't pass those lessons along, they get lost among us over time, right? And so we always say history repeats itself. History repeats itself because we don't learn from our past lessons. And so I want to do and contribute as much as I can to make sure that the lessons I have learned, whether they be good or bad, and, and if you read my book, you'll see there's some mistakes I made in that book um, along my leadership journey, but I want people to learn from them, right? And so at the end of the day, if we can focus on how do we transition that learning to the next generation that's going to come behind us to make, for me, our Navy a little bit stronger or anybody else, my book is, is might seem a little bit Navy-centric, but at the end of the day, anybody can relate to it, I hope. And so... Um, so concepts on leadership is really about the power of positive. And I really do believe that if you give people positive energy, you're going to get a positive result in return. If you give them a negative leadership, if you give them dictatorship, you're going to start to see things erode. And so I, I used an analogy not too long ago, um, about ship, right? Because I'm in the Navy or serve the Navy and so you can be one of two ships. You can be the leadership or you can be the dictatorship. Look back on history and how well dictatorships have worked as opposed to how well leadership has worked. And oftentimes you'll see that dictatorship is looked at as something that's being very negative and leadership has been perceived in the success mode as something being very positive. And so when you take a look at a leadership from a perspective, I, I sometimes I use a term and one of the terms in the book is, is ice leadership, right? And so sometimes you have to chill out uh, and you can, you can do leadership, right? If sometimes you take a step back and you realize you don't know everything and you have to depend on other people to support you in whatever your objective is. Now you're clearly communicating your objective. And, and if the people that are working with you on your team, do they understand what that objective is? And do they respect you as a person to be able to say that I want to support you in doing these things? And so there are many great leadership books that I reference in, in my book that talk about people getting on a bus with you. First of all, they don't have to get on the bus with you to take that ride, right? And so Good to Great is a story that talks about getting on the bus with people. And so if you get on the bus with me and you don't like the ride, you can get off the bus whenever you want. And for the leader, that might be losing a valuable asset because they didn't, you know, they, they had something that, that you needed to help them be successful. And so the ICE concept is, is three letters, I, C, and E. Chill out. The I is inspire. First of all, as a leader, you have to be the type of person that can inspire other people. Now, you cannot inspire other people if people don't respect you. And it's more about uh, how you live your life and how you lead, right? So it's not just on the job or on the project that you're working, but it's about the life that you live. Are you a good parent? Are you a good spouse? 
Are you a good person in your community? Are you a good person at the workplace? All of those things create a perception of the individual leader that contribute onto whether or not you're going to get a lot, enable people to take a ride with you, right? So only then when you're the type of person that is respected by other people, can you truly inspire somebody? And so that's the first step to getting on the bus, right? If they can, if you can inspire somebody else, they might get on the bus with you. So that's the I. The C is the challenge, right? Once you have the ability to inspire somebody, you have to challenge them. And this is where a lot of the work comes in, right? And so the challenge piece is you have to challenge them to do more than they ever thought they could do themselves, right? And so to be able to do that, you have to prepare them. You have to give them the tools and the resources. You have to give them the level of education and knowledge to be successful in the task that you're expecting them to achieve. And so if you're not giving them the tools, the resources, and the knowledge to be able to challenge them, they're going to fail miserably at whatever you challenge them. And so sometimes when we have failures in an organization, it's not necessarily the people that are being challenged that you have to blame and that's oftentimes why the leader is the one that's getting fired because they're not doing the things necessary to prepare the people to be successful in the task that you're giving them. Right. And so there's a lot of work involved. Leadership is not easy, right? But there's a lot of work in building your team and growing your team and investing in your team and ensuring that you're being successful. You're motivating them. You're positively reinforcing them. All of this happens in that challenge mode. Right. And so you're getting them ready to, to achieve more than they thought they could ever do before. So that's the challenge. The E is the empowerment piece. And so you empower people. Once you've inspired, you've challenged them, you've given them the tools or resources, you've challenged them to reach a certain goal, you have now empowered them. Go empower them. Don't stand over top of them. You've prepared them. And if you prepared them well, they're going to go lead the task in the manner that you've effectively communicated to them and you've empowered them to go do the job. Are they going to have setbacks? Absolutely. What do they learn from that? You know, you got to be there sometimes when that, when you've empowered them and they've had a setback, how do you handle that? Do you kick them to the curb or do you remotivate them, give them what they need to get back to the level of success and help them achieve success again? That's leadership, right? And so now empowerment, is also they go out and they perform the task, and when they come back and the task is successful and they feel a great deal of pride in that, how do you treat that? Do you positively reinforce that for the people that have led and have made it possible? Or do you just say, well, that's what I expected you to do? You need to positively reinforce uh, those behaviors that you want to make your team be successful. So the power of your positive leadership is really encompassing all of those things together to get to an end state of what your desired goal is, but then for the leader to also have a vision what's next, right? And so the leader, you have a lot of people down here that are doing those things, the inspire, the challenge, the empower, but what is your vision? What is your vision for what's next? Because once they're done, they've got to be able to say, what is my next goal I'm going to achieve? And if you look at many of the successful companies in our country and see the things that they've done, it's always about going to the next step. There's somebody that has a vision about what's going to happen 10 years down the road. Um, you know, you, you could use Ford Motor Company as an example right now where they're trying to transition everything to electric cars and go to an SUV 
more um, platform, uh, vice the, the the smaller cars and gas engines. You know, there's a vision that somebody has there. That's the wave of the future, and we need to get there now, and we need to lead that technology. Um, Tesla is another good example, right? And so there's many things and many companies doing many great things that are thinking about, especially now in this current environment, now that we're living in today in the current situation, in which companies have to reinvent themselves. There's a, in Washington, D.C. here, there's a a company that was a um, uh, distillery, right? So they've shut down their distillery process. You know what they're doing now? They're making hand sanitizer, because of the shortage of hand sanitizer in our country with the way people are buying things up. And they are making hand sanitizer in a distillery and selling it to the people that need hand sanitizer and people are loving it. They've learned how to regenerate themselves and become relevant to the current population and what they need and meet the demands of the people that they serve. So just a pretty uh, unique things that go on there. So my, you know, I always use inspire, challenge, empower when we talk about leadership principles and, and how to paint a picture, you know, threes are usually easy for people to remember. So inspire, challenge, and empower, power, positive, and, and how do you get after leadership? Is there a particular leader or mentor that you had in your life that helped you shape your philosophy on leadership? Uh, well, a very young age, uh, probably my dad, uh, Lester Francis Benning. My dad passed away in 2008, but, um, you know, I think it starts there with your family if you have a strong family unit. Um, so my, my dad at a very young age, uh, when I got into the military, you know, we move around every couple of years in the Navy to different places. And so I think I could go to each one of those tours and tell you that I had different mentors along the way. Um one that, that I talk about quite a bit in my book when I was the command master chief of the George Washington, you know, so here I was a senior enlisted leader on board an aircraft carrier. And uh, I would tell you that the person that I was closest with was our executive officer. Uh, at the time, it was Captain D. Mewborn. And our commanding officer was Captain Marty Erdesey and the, both two phenomenal leaders. And so I I look at mentorship from the perspective that um, – that it's a, a relationship that you enter. Uh, there were other mentors on board that command, for example, that were junior to me. Uh, there's another one, uh, Master Chief Brian Exum. Uh, I was a command master chief. He was a master chief in one of the other departments, for example. But I learned things from him, and he learned things from me. He went on to become a command master chief. I, I like to think I had something to do with that. Uh, but he also had something to do with helping me get my education uh, because he motivated me to go after and get my degree and stuff. And so those types of things, the mentorship relationship is a two-way relationship in which you learn things from each other. And so I don't ever like to put myself in a place to think that one is greater than the other. We all have different experiences and it's how we share those experiences. But I would tell you for, for uh, Captain Mewborn as the executive officer on that ship, he and I were very close and we would, we would actually read leadership books at the same time and, and, and have discussions on learning from those leadership books and how we would apply it and how we were doing the daily business of the work on, the, on board the aircraft carrier. And so uh, I learned a tremendous amount from him as well as other leaders. Uh, Captain Mewborn is now uh, Vice Admiral Mewborn, uh, a three-star admiral in the Navy and, and doing very well. 
so I like to think I picked a really good person to have as a mentor and as a as somebody that I worked very closely with. And so I think wherever you go in life, there's going to be different situations, whether it be your professional life or your personal life. Um, there are going to be different mentors that you have along the way. Um, and so I think you can't always tie your success to just one mentor. Uh, we have different needs at different times in our lives and different situations that we have. And if we seek people out that have achieved success in different areas and we work to learn from them and at the same time we share our experiences with them, it becomes an interaction and it becomes more of a mentorship. It becomes a friendship along with the mentorship. And I find that that's what's been most successful for me throughout my life and I will continue to do today. You know, I could use my wife as another great example of mentorship. I mean, I think that if you don't marry somebody that's uh, not working to make you better and you have that relationship where you can have the effective communications back and forth between you and your spouse, it's going to make your relationship strong and, and you work to make each other better. You don't have to pick at each other. But you just have to communicate effectively and learn how to, to relate to one another and, and, and how to learn from each other about life experiences and how we make each other better for the, for the, for me, my, my family is a team. And so it's not just about me and my wife. It's about me and my wife, my, my two sons and their wives and our four grandkids. And, you know, the, the other external family that we have around us. And so when we put our resources together, we put our minds together and we respect each other for our thoughts and our values. And we learn from each other. Only then do we become successful. So on another note, um, I would like to know how you got started with the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation. So as you know, Peter Fertig, uh, an amazing uh, gentleman and, and a great friend, him and, and Bob Arnold, both I, I, I cherish to, to no end, right? And so um, Peter uh, had that relationship with Bob Feller and uh, based on writing his book. And um, so he had reached out to Admiral Jabbly. I guess he made contact with Admiral Jabbly at the time, worked at NAVC in Washington, D.C. And, and really, Admiral Jabbly said, hey, you need to really think about getting a senior enlisted uh, person to be a part of the board and the foundation as well. Uh, they initially reached out to uh, Rick West, who was the uh, Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy, when I was the fleet mass chief. And so Rick and I worked very closely together. We continued to be great friends. Uh, he had a lot going on in his life after retirement and didn't feel like he had the time to take on that particular board position, but he knew I was a huge baseball guy. And, and so he picked up my phone and called me and, and then he connected me with Peter. And so we got started on that journey together. And, and um, at the time I had just retired from the Navy uh, didn't have a new job yet. I had been five or six months without a job after the Navy. And so it became an opportunity to jump into something, to engage and to learn and to help Peter uh, really get uh, his foundation started. So it was a pretty exciting time. Uh, and really four years, did it for four years. And, and I, I do think that sometimes uh, you have to evaluate your own situation. So I left the board after four years uh, and I did that only because my life too became busy and I got to a point when I realized when I couldn't give it my full attention, like I had been giving it, that I really need to get out of the way and let somebody else get on the board. Or at the time I was doing the vice president of the foundation, 
which is a pretty busy job. I couldn't give it what I needed to to get it to the next place, and so I really need to get out of the way and let somebody else take it to the next level. And so, uh, but yeah, I truly, uh, truly uh, cherish all the work that they're doing um, and proud of the work that we did together for as a team for the first four years to, to enable not too many nonprofits will exist beyond a year or two. Uh, I think they're going into their sixth, seventh year now, uh, and just phenomenal the work that Peter, Bob Arnold, and all the uh, the members of the board and everybody else involved in that foundation, to include you all with what you're doing with this podcast, have done to really promote the awareness not only of just Bob Fellow, but it's about the the you know the principles of what the foundation is about and service and dedication to serving our country and those that serve. As you mentioned, some of the principles that the Bob Feller Foundation represents, we speak about Bob Feller's service in the word valor, as he prioritized service to country above the game of baseball. What does valor mean to you? Well, valor, um, there's a certain level of what valor means in the military, right? And so there's extraordinary, uh, you could almost say, maybe do we misuse that word a little bit? Uh, I mean, I don't know. Um, there's valor, a level of sacrifice associated with valor that goes above and beyond even service. Uh, we talked about sacrifice early. When you think about Bob Feller and the commitment that during that time he made to his country, uh, thinking as a very young pitcher who could have, instead of serving his country, could have stayed just playing baseball, could have used the excuse, I'm, I need to be here for my family farm in Iowa and all those different types of things. Um, Instead, he realized he needed to go serve. He sacrificed a lot. He could have had stats that went through the roof that far exceed anybody in baseball today had he stayed playing baseball. But he was not focused on that. He was focused on a greater, um, a greater um, purpose. Uh, and, and Bob Feller was always known for saying uh, what was the most important team he ever played on. It was the United States Navy. What was the most important game? It was serving in World War II for my country, right? It wasn't some World Series game. It wasn't some important baseball game, one of his no-hitters or anything like that. It was about serving his country that became the most important part of his life. And so he understood sacrifice. He understood the purpose of not only going and serve. As you know, a lot of athletes during that time uh, came into the military and, uh, and they became like a, a morale booster for the troops where they just played baseball. So not all of them went and served in combat roles. Bob Feller said, I came here to serve. I didn't come here to play baseball. I came here to serve. And he went out on board USS Alabama, and he served as a chief petty officer in a gunner position on board a, a Navy ship and, and went into those campaigns, and he fought for his country. He didn't play baseball. He fought for his country. And so if there's, no, if there's anybody that understood sacrifice, uh, during that time, uh, probably more so than most, it was Bob Feller. And so you could say there's valor associated with that and the fact that just the level of sacrifice that he made that others will compare it to now um, to say there was valor associated with that. Valor today uh, goes into the level of awards to the fact that the, those that make the ultimate sacrifice or those that have done some extraordinarily important event in a combat role to save the lives or to execute a mission in the manner in which saved the lives of many. Um, so um, 
valor, uh, a very important word in our military associated with awards uh, and associated with the level of sacrifice that people make. That's great. That's that's amazing insight. Um, Scott, thank you for uh, joining us today. It's been a pleasure uh, getting to speak with you and hearing about your career and your thoughts on leadership. Hey, thank you guys again. I I really appreciate it. Um, uh, What you all are doing is leading with the power of your positive leadership. You found a way in which you can contribute to uh, something that's sending a message across our country about the importance of service. So uh, again, thank you so much for all that you're doing. Uh, Keep supporting and, and always, always go forward and lead with the power of your positive leadership. Thank you guys so much. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for your time, Scott. Sure. Thank you so much for listening to the American Valor podcast. We encourage you to leave a review, share the podcast with your friends and family, and engage with the Bob Feller Active Valor Foundation on activevalorawards.org or at Active Valor Award on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For Tyler Buckholtz and Colin Kirk, my name is Nathaniel Cameron. Please join us next time when the conversation will feature Judge Michael Allen from the United States Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims.